Well, welcome again to King's Cross. It's good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, we are in the book of Esther. You know, if you've been with us, we're working through a series in the Old Testament book of Esther. It's about a third of the way through your Bibles. You can go ahead and be turning there. And I just want to encourage you, um, if you, if you miss a week or two in this series, I want to encourage you to go online or go to our podcast feed wherever and listen to the sermons that you may have missed. Not because we're trying to drive numbers. I'm... Uh, have no illusion that more than about a half a dozen people listen to our podcast most weeks, but because the book of Esther is a story, it's a narrative. And if you miss a week or two, you're going to come back and it's going to feel like you just skipped a couple chapters in a novel and you're not quite sure what's going on. So I want to encourage you, um, because I can't give a full overview of everything that's happened in the previous chapters each week, to go and listen to those. But just high level reminder of where we are in the book of Esther. One, uh, the book takes place in the 5th century B.C., so the, the 400s before Christ came to earth. Uh, it, it involves Jewish people dispersed throughout the nations during the time of the Persian Empire. So God's people were exiled during the Babylonian Empire. Empires changed hands. Now Persia is in charge, and many of the Jews were allowed to go back home, but for various reasons, most of them stayed dispersed throughout the nations, and that's who we're picking up with in Esther. In chapter 1, we were introduced to the king, King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes was his Greek name, which he's actually better known by historically. He's the most powerful man in the most powerful kingdom on earth. He's, he's the most powerful man ever at this point in history. And he throws this 180-day rager, at the end of which he adds another seven days to the party, at the end of which time he is drunk. And he asks his wife, the queen, to parade herself in front of his friends, and she refuses, and so he expels her from the palace. And we get to chapter 2, and he's come back from a few years of military campaigns, and he's been defeated, and he's feeling lousy. He's thinking about his wife, who he presumably misses, and his counselors tell him, here's what you need to do to find another queen. You need to have this huge, you know, basically the bachelor, but for like 5th century BC Persia, and hundreds and hundreds of women are brought into the palace, and one of them is going to be made queen, and eventually we know that in God's sovereignty and providence, he appoints Esther to the position of the queen. Meanwhile, her older cousin and guardian Mordecai is getting into hot water. Uh, he refuses to bow down before Haman, who's the second most powerful person in the kingdom. And Haman is so mad and he overreacts so intensely that it's not good enough to just do away with Mordecai. He has to make a plan to annihilate all of the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. And so we ended last week seeing that God's people have a powerful enemy. There's a fateful day set in the future for their destruction. And the question before them is, God has delivered us before, will he deliver us again? We're picking up in chapter 4 today, and again, I'm reading two chapters. Uh, this just isn't the kind of book where you can read a few verses at a time and preach through it. It's a narrative, so we have to read big chunks. So again, let me just invite you, whatever you need to do physically or mentally with your posture, to stay engaged for a few minutes while I read, I would encourage you to do so. Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city and cried loudly and bitterly. He went only as far as the king's gate since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict reached. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes." 
Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her, and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who attended her, and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened, as well as the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering their destruction, so that Hathak might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. Hathak came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned. The death penalty, unless the king extends the gold scepter, allowing that person to live. I haven't been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. On the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor with him. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. What is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be given to you. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. The king said, hurry and get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half of the kingdom, will be done. Esther answered, This is my petition and my request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. That day Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate... And Mordecai did not rise or tremble and feared his presence. Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials and the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I am invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, none of this satisfies me, because I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife Zeresh and all his friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. 
The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever faced a problem that you were completely powerless to solve? This happens to me with some measure of frequency. It's called anything in the house needs to be fixed, and it is a problem I'm powerless to solve. Of course, there are some things that I can watch some YouTube videos and uh, call Mitch or Clint and borrow some tools, uh, or maybe hire Justin and get him to come do it for me. But there are some things that are, that are truly insurmountable problems, things that, that you look at and realize, I have absolutely no ability to do anything about this. One of those recently was when the wind storms came through Nashville this spring. A few days later, we walked outside in our backyard, and we have this big tree that's like 40 feet tall. And I, I happened to notice that one of the branches, probably like a 15-foot branch, about halfway through was broken, and the outside half was just pointed directly at the ground, dangling by what looked like a thread. And we realized if we don't get somebody to take care of this branch, it's going to fall and crush our garage or crush one of our cars or crush one of us if we happen to be standing there. But it's the kind of problem that you look at and you're like, I, it's 40 feet in the air. It probably weighs 100, 200 pounds. I, there's no way. I don't have the equipment. I don't have the ability. There's no way that I could do anything about this. And it turns out that, that companies that work with trees also know that you can do nothing about these problems uh, because you can get as many quotes as you want and they're all quite expensive for the 30 minutes of work it's going to take them to come and do something about it. But you're at their mercy. There's nothing you can do, and so you, you, you hire them. I, I don't know what your insurmountable problems are in life. They may be similar to mine. Uh, you may be good at, at indoor things but not good at fixing things, but they may be more serious than that. It may be a, a kind of relational brokenness in your life, in your family, or among your friends that you look at and you just think, this is so broken and we're so stuck that I just have no way of doing anything about this. Maybe difficulty at work with a cruel boss. It may be desire for marriage and family in the midst of extended singleness. It may not really be in your own life. You may look around at the world and just think there is so much injustice and so much brokenness, poverty, corruption in government. So many things are wrong that are overwhelming, but you look at them and you think there, there's literally nothing that I can do about this. There's nothing I can do to solve this. In today's text, the Jews faced a problem that they could not solve. They have, again, a powerful enemy, a date set for their annihilation, and they have no recourse to do anything about it. This isn't a democracy. They can't go and appeal to their, their state legislators. There's nothing that they can do to solve this problem. How did they respond? What did they do? And what can we learn from their response? We see three things in the text. First, lament. Second, corporate fasting and prayer. And third, action. So first, lament. Lament is an unfamiliar concept for many of us. Uh, it would not have been unfamiliar in the days that Scripture was written. Lament is a form of public grief, a public expression of anger and sadness, usually using established rituals for grieving a death or for repenting of personal or corporate sin or for grieving a, a, a national tragedy or catastrophe. Here we see Mordecai doing this publicly, using these established rituals. The text says that he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went into the middle of the city, and he cried loudly and bitterly. Now this is so foreign to us. You can just imagine that if you were walking downtown in Nashville and you saw somebody tearing their clothes wearing sackcloth and ashes and screaming loudly, you would think there's something seriously wrong 
with this person. You would be frightened by them. This concept is, is foreign to us because for many reasons we prefer to grieve in quiet, in private. There, there's several values that we have in the West that work against lament. We value efficiency. We value what philosophers of a different age call technique, which is sort of this, this combination of like professionalization and technology. Basically what we want is something or someone that can efficiently and quickly get us through the grieving process without us having to feel too much pain and without it being noticed by others. We, of course, are the most individualistic society that's ever lived. Right? We have this sort of agreement, like your grief is your grief and my grief is my grief. I'm not going to put my grief on you. You're not going to put yours on me. Like if I cry in front of you, that's really embarrassing. And all of this is rooted in our just generally secular society. Now, when I say secularism, I don't necessarily mean like godless atheism. What I mean is this sort of social pact that we are going to live together as communities, as states, as nations, in a way that doesn't really acknowledge the reality of anything beyond what we can see and touch and feel here and now. And the modern secular West is less equipped to handle suffering than any other culture in world history. This is not unique to me. Many, many people, much smarter than me, have pointed out how modern secular people have less ability to cope with and deal with suffering than any other society in world history. Why? Because other cultures, all sort of understanding the world through the lens of the great world religions and great philosophies, have an understanding of a sort of narrative arc to their lives that begins long before they were born and ends long after. They have a concept of life beyond this life. And for all of those stories, all those narrative arcs, suffering actually has an essential role to play in your life. Uh, you can think of you know, ancient traditional societies where, for example, sacrificing yourself for your nation or your people would, would make you a great hero for many generations to come. And so suffering is actually a really great thing that you can do to sort of be valorized in your culture. Eastern religions often will say that, that if you're suffering in this life, it's because of something that you did in a previous life. But if you, if you become a good person and you get through it, then in the next life, you won't suffer as much. Christianity says that suffering is a means of sanctification, a means by which the Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus. All these stories and religions give us the ability to walk through suffering, but a secular culture just doesn't give us that. If your story begins at birth and ends at death, and eventually everything's going to burn up anyway, so nobody's going to remember anything that anybody did, then suffering cannot be anything other than an unwanted imposition into the arc of your life. And you have to try to get through it as quickly and painlessly as you can. I um, overheard a conversation recently that I thought gave a great picture to this on Wednesday night, I'd been out of town for a few days, and while I was gone, Lindsay took the kids up to Cincinnati to stay with her parents, and so I got home. Wednesday evening, landed at like 7 o'clock. You know, you get home after a trip, there's not really much food in the fridge, and so I was like, I don't want to go to the grocery store, I'm just going to go eat by myself. So I took my book, and I went to a local sushi restaurant, and I was sitting there at the host stand waiting to be seated, and there was the, the table closest to me was having a kind of a loud conversation, and I was listening to them. And I picked up that they were from Boston, and they were visiting town. And this woman was talking about the sort of social architecture of Boston. 
And she was complaining and getting frustrated. She said, you know, it's a big city, but we have no more space to build. We can't build new bars or new restaurants or coffee shops or whatever because there's so many graveyards that take up so much space in Boston. She said, there's all these graveyards that we can't do anything about. And she said, quote, they're doing nothing but wasting space. I just thought that is like the, the best picture of secular understanding of the world that I've ever heard. Like, why keep a sacred space for remembering death when you could build a sports bar, right? That's completely counter to the Bible's way of thinking. The book of Ecclesiastes actually says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. It's better to go to a funeral than to a wedding. Why? Well, because in the context of Ecclesiastes, that's more in line with the reality of the world. This is the same reason that Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Jesus did not just mean, like, if you have a, a, a sort of Eeyore personality, God will bless you. That's not what he was saying. What he was saying was, if you understand the way that God created the world to be, and you understand how it is instead, you will mourn. And you will long for the kingdom of God. And if you live like that, you're actually blessed. You're actually living a life in accordance with reality. Now, this temptation to rush past lament, to solve the surface problem without addressing the root, to hide cemeteries rather than grieve death, is, is characteristically modern, but it's not exclusively modern. We actually see that Esther is tempted to do the same. Verse 4, when she finds out what's going on, it says, she sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth. She wants to get rid of the appearance of the problem. She wants to put a Band-Aid on it. She wants him to change clothes and stop you know, being weird and just like get through the grieving process. But of course, he refuses and he explains to her the situation. And I think that we have a lot to learn from Mordecai. Might we be better off if in the face of our own tragedies, personal and corporate, in the face of our own sin, personal and corporate, and in response to the death and the loss and the insurmountable problems of our world, might we be better off if we took time to practice lament? Of course, the personal and spontaneous lament of Mordecai turns into an organized lament in the form of three straight days of fasting, and I think we should assume prayer as well. Now, the text doesn't say anything about prayer, uh, but everywhere in the Bible, fasting is associated with prayer. I think this is part of the author of Esther's motif of the silence of God. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Esther is the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned explicitly, Right? And so I think the author is, is not mentioning prayer because he wants to continue to operate in the sort of hiddenness of God motif, even though we understand that God is acting in secret all the time. So they commit themselves to three days of fasting, no food, no water, praying the whole time. And I won't ask by a show of hands, but if I were to ask, have you ever been a part of something like this? I would imagine that the majority of people in the room would say no or at least not in a very, very long time. Why would we do this? Why would we practice this sort of organized prayer and fasting? Three reasons. One, remember, Esther and her people were praying for deliverance. There was a problem at hand, and they, were, they, were, they had no recourse with the state, so they did have a recourse with God, right? And so they're committing to fasting and praying because corporate prayer and fasting changes things. Now, it's not automatic. It's not mechanical, 
There's times when it doesn't change things the way that you want it to. But if we look at the stories in Scripture and if we look at stories throughout history, we can see that when God's people commit to praying and fasting together, things happen. Things change. Second, corporate prayer and fasting not only changes things, it changes us. When we participate in these things together, it changes us. We become people who are deeply reliant and dependent on God. We become people who are deeply reliant and dependent on one another. We become, you've experienced this, when, when you commit to praying about something, you begin to care more deeply about it, right? We become people who care deeply about the problems that we're praying about in the world. Corporate prayer and fasting changes things, it changes us, and it also witnesses to the gospel. Now, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, go do it in secret. When you fast, don't let anybody know that you're fasting. But we know that as God's people come together and commit to these types of things, even as we try to keep it hidden, people notice, right? People see things. People find out what Christians are doing. And when they do, it's an opportunity to to tell people why we're doing that, why we are so dependent on God, why we believe that he actually hears us and responds to us. It's an opportunity to witness to the reality of the gospel. Now, you might hear all this, and you might think, that's nice. Like, lament, prayer, fasting, that's nice. But we need to actually do something. Like, in the, in the face of all the problems in the world, to sit back and pray and lament is fine, but it doesn't do anything without action. And this is actually a debate that we have in our culture, right? Like, every, in particular, in our country, every time there's a mass shooting, some people respond and say, thoughts and prayers about such and such situation. And other people respond to them and say, your thoughts and prayers aren't doing anything. We've had enough thoughts and prayers. You need to act. I just want to encourage us as Christians not to make prayer and action into a false dichotomy. Not to pretend that we have to choose between prayer and action. Of course, there is a kind of prayer and fasting that is empty because it's devoid of good works. We see this, for example, Isaiah chapter 58, verses 3 and following. God's people are praying and they say, Why have we fasted, but you haven't seen? We've denied ourselves, but you haven't noticed. And God responds, Look, you do as you please on the day of your fast and oppress all your workers. You fast, God says, with contention and strife to strike viciously with your fist. You can't fast as you do today and hope that your voice will be heard on high. God responds, isn't this the fast that I choose? To break the chains of wickedness? To untie the ropes of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and to tear off every yoke? Is it not, he says, to share your bread with the hungry? To bring the poor and homeless into your house? To clothe the naked when you see him? To pray and fast while perpetuating injustice is to practice what James, the brother of Jesus, called dead religion, In James chapter 2, he says, faith without works is dead. It's good for nothing. It can't save anybody. So prayer and fasting must be prayed with action, must be paired with action. But what is action? Action is not rage posting on social media. It may make you feel good. It may look good before other people, but it doesn't actually accomplish anything. Action, rather, is considering where God in his providence has placed you so that you can courageously lay down your well-being for the sake of others. Action is considering where God and his providence has placed you so that you can courageously lay down your well-being for the sake of others. And that's what Esther does. 
But notice, courageously laying down your well-being for the sake of others doesn't mean that you're not afraid. Esther is filled with fear. And, and she hears you know, from Mordecai, he tells her what to do, and she says, this is a suicide mission. I can't go to the king. He'll kill me. I'm not going to do it. And he responds, of course, with the most famous verse in the whole book. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows, he says, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Courage, in the end, is not the absence of fear. It is the absence of self. It's a recognition of what you have to do and doing it. And Esther came to terms with this, and she says, after you guys fast and pray for me for three days, I will go to the king. I'll do it. And if I die, I die. Notice the unique offering of biblical faith. Esther encourages neither shallow optimism nor resigned pessimism. Neither shallow optimism nor resigned pessimism. I feel like sometimes in our world, the offerings on hand are a sort of shallow and weak and glib Christianity that says, God will deliver you, God will save you, your breakthrough's coming, and a sort of resigned, cynical secularism that says, God's not coming to do anything for you. And the biblical view just cuts across both of those, and it says, God can deliver me. But even if he doesn't, one of the best pictures of this in the Old Testament in the, in the Bible is another story from exile. It's when Daniel, uh, Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are put in a position where they're told, you have to bow down and worship a, a, an idol, an idol of the king. And they say, we're not, we're not going to do it. And the punishment is, of course, you're going to get thrown into a fiery furnace if you don't do it. And so they're given their last chance, and they say, you can bow down right now, or you're going in the furnace. And what do they say? They say... We know that our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we are not going to worship you. What does action look like in the face of insurmountable odds? It is considering where God in his providence has placed you so that you can courageously lay down your well-being for the sake of others and trusting that God can deliver you. You might be afraid of the costs of action, and that's okay. So I, I don't know what it is in your life. You may be afraid of, of sacrificing yourself for the, the baby that's on the way or the baby that has come recently. You may be afraid of the cost of forgiving that difficult family member that you would rather not forgive. You may be afraid of the cost of faithfulness to the Christian social ethic. And that's okay. God has put you in a position to act, whatever that means for you, and he will give you everything you need to do it. But you dare not act without prayer. It is prayer and the theology that undergirds prayer that gives us the hope and the strength and the wisdom and the courage to act. Now, does it work? Uh, at this point in the story, yes and no. It works and it doesn't work. The king extends the scepter to Esther. She goes in, she's afraid she's going to die, but he's happy to see her. God again gives her favor. He extends the scepter. She's safe. She's okay. And she has the opportunity to enter into this wise and courageous plan to try and save her people. But on the other hand, look at chapter 5, verses 9 through 14. Haman is bragging about everything that's going right in his world. But verse 13, he says, I've got everything in the world, but none of it matters as long as I have to see Mordecai the Jew sitting there. He can't, he's so bent out of shape about Mordecai not bowing down to him that he can't even enjoy being the second most powerful man in the world. So what does he do? 
He goes home and he listens to his wife and friends who tell him to build a 75-foot gallows and to hang Mordecai on it. Does the lament and the prayer and the action work? Well, yes and no. Esther has an opportunity to, to work on her plan to save her people, but Mordecai is going to be hanged as a public spectacle the very next day. And the same yes and no thing just might be true for us. Like, will, will lament and prayer and fasting and action heal your broken relationships? Will it heal your broken body? Will it heal our broken nation or our broken world? I don't know. I don't know if God will answer your prayer in the affirmative. But here's what I do know. Of all the seemingly insurmountable problems in our lives, there's only one that's actually insurmountable. And it's the problem of human sin and guilt. Now, we talk a lot about sin around here, which may be unpopular for a church in our day. I don't know. Why do we do that? For many reasons. One, because it's a real problem, but also because the beginning of relief from this problem is the feeling of conviction. The beginning of relief from the problem of sin is to feel the weight of your guilt and shame, because until we're convicted of the reality of our sin, we won't lament it. And until we lament it, we won't cry out to God in prayer. But when we are convicted of sin, and when we lament it, and when we cry out to God in prayer, what do we find? We find that God has put someone in a position to act for us. We find that there is someone who brings deliverance to God's people, someone who is there for such a time as this. And his name is not you or me. His name is Jesus. Listen, you and I, can try to fix the problem of our sin on our own, but it won't work. You're familiar with the character of Greek mythology, Sisyphus. In Homer's The Odyssey, Odysseus comes across this figure who's been cursed by Zeus to a never-ending task. Odysseus says, Then I witnessed the torture of Sisyphus as he wrestled with a huge rock with both hands. Bracing himself and thrusting with hands and feet, he pushed the boulder uphill to the top, but every time as he was about to send it toppling over the crest, its sheer weight turned it back, and once again, towards the plain, the pitiless rock rolled down. So once more, he had to wrestle with the thing and push it up while the sweat poured from his limbs and the dust rose high above his head. Is that you? Is that you in the, in the face of your own shortcomings before God? Are you trying endlessly, perpetually to make up for your sin through your own moral behavior or through the pursuit of social justice in the world or by just trying to be a really good person, a really good mom or dad or husband or wife or friend? And if so, aren't you tired? We can try to solve the unsolvable problem of our sin, but it is ultimately a Sisyphean task. And in the end, our good works have about as much ability to hold back the weight of God's judgment against sin as a spiderweb would holding back that rock if Sisyphus let go of it. The only way that you and I can be delivered is if there is someone to act on our behalf, if we have a mediator, if we have someone like Esther who's willing to lay down their well-being for our sake. And Jesus Christ is that person. Jesus is the true and better Esther who not only risked his life, but gave his life to save us. Jesus lived the sinless life that you and I failed to live 
and died a sin-bearing death in our place. And this means, in closing, three things. It means a lot of things for us. Here are three things that it means for us. First, God has solved our ultimate unsolvable problem in Christ. God has solved our ultimate unsolvable problem in Christ. Because God put forward his son, Jesus, at the right time to be a substitute for sinners, if we cry out to him in faith, we will be saved and our sins will be forgiven and we will be able, as we read in Psalm 24 earlier, to enter into the presence of God without fear of judgment. And in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy. Second, if God in Christ solved our ultimate problem by courageously sacrificing himself for us, shouldn't we do the same for others? Shouldn't we imitate Christ, our Lord and our friend and our Savior and our teacher? I don't know where it is for you. I don't know where God has placed you. But there is somewhere in your life where God has put you in the gap for somebody else where you can lay down your well-being to serve others. God is sovereign. And Christ is your example, and the Holy Spirit dwells in you in power. Whatever it is, you can do it. And finally, if God in Christ solved our ultimate unsolvable problem, won't he solve all the other ones too? Listen, I said I don't know if God will answer your prayers. I don't have a a magic formula to make everything in your life work out right now. I don't have that. But what I do have is the assurance that ultimately... All of those problems are going to be solved. It may not be on our time. It may not be in the next month. It may not be in this life before we die. But ultimately, if God solved the problem of our sin, he will solve problems of broken families and addiction and poverty and corruption and injustice. When Jesus Christ returns to bring his kingdom in full in his new creation, all things will be perfected and every sad thing will come untrue. This is our hope.